This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are the Washington Post great foreign policy columnist, David Ignatius, and the director of the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, Jeff Olivet. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write in the politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to Politicon for next week's show. Now, we'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the link to our sponsors, Z-Biotics, in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting this sponsor. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, uh, once again, Biden, Trump, uh, they remain far and away the preference uh, of their party for the nomination, presidential nomination. Most Americans don't want either one of them to run, and they both face I think, considerable challenges in the next couple months. Biden first. Uh, they have a good story. The Biden team has a really good story, and the president just doesn't seem to be able to communicate it. Uh, I was with a Biden supporter this week who was talking about Gavin Newsom's appearance on Sean Hannity. He said, he laid out the Biden case so well. Why can't Biden do that? I guess he just can't. Uh, there's going to, there's talk now, will he debate Bobby Kennedy? There's no way in the world they're going to put Joe Biden on a debate stage with Bobby Kennedy or anyone else other than conceivably in the general election. And then he's got the issue of his vice president. Uh, there's talk of another reboot. She's on the road. She's kind of taken over the abortion issue. Uh, there's going to be a big PR campaign led by Anita Dunn. They got a long way to go, James. Uh, the NBC poll showed that she has the lowest rating of any vice president they've ever measured. Uh, I don't think there's any real chance they're going to replace her on the ticket. But right now, Kamala Harris is a drag. Well, all right. But let's take them in order. And uh, get the, the messaging. I, I'm very clear that on this program. I, I think our both of our preference would be that we had an open primary. But if Biden runs, that undoubtedly we would, I know I would, speak for myself, would be strongly supportive. I, I, I think he has a great record. The messaging to me is wrong. And the messaging is how good we doing. All right. Most people see that. They have the reaction, damn, with the cost of living, and does he really think that it's all great out there? I'm strapped. It's tough. And what the message should twist to is, is a, a little more shade a little bit toward fear and say, look, we understand that. That's why we have dealt with, tried to deal as best we can to give you help on the cost of prescription drugs. We understand that. That's why we worked up still far too high, but we worked really hard on getting the price of gas down. We understand that. That's why we have 
expanded these programs and equally importantly, we are totally committed to, to maintaining the current levels of funding for Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. And the big question, you brought this up before, is if we go into 2025, do you think that we need to cut Medicaid, given the fact that people are struggling with the cost of living and they still are, let me assure you, that do we need to, to take away Social Security and Medicare or cut that? Do we need to raise taxes on families that have an income of below $55,000 a year? I submit to you that I understand that, that families have a ways to go here, but we sure don't want to go in reverse. Now, that's kind of hard to do when you, you have some impressive headline numbers, but people say, I don't feel it. And I don't, I, as of right now, they're not willing to be talked into it. So if you can't talk them into liking you anymore, there's only one other choice you have is talk them into hating them more. I, I mean, it's, it, it's not, you know, morning in America. It's not the New Deal. It's not, you know, America's on a tear or, or something like that. But when you're in this position, you take the best you got and you just pound home that the first decision that the, the next president who's, who's elected makes is, do you continue current levels of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and do you continue current levels on taxations on, on, on people whose incomes are, are under $55,000 a year? It's the best I can do. And, and do you end the huge tax breaks that rich people got under Donald Trump? And uh, right. do you want to continue the uh, affordable health care subsidies? Because they Absolutely. expire next that, year. That big, huge deal. Yep. I, I agree. It's expensive. Yeah, you know, uh, it's expensive. You're struggling. But the subsidies are helping you. Right. And you take right. them away, you, 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 you're just going to be awful. Absolutely. That, that and prescription drugs um, uh, reform. Uh, it's not enough. It will make a we, difference. We, we, you know, we understand that. And we're, we know you're struggling and we're struggling and have done some things and we're struggling to still deliver some more help to you. But, but the idea that you don't appreciate how good this economy is or, you know, the remarkable headline numbers. And w once people hear that, they shut down on you. And uh, can, yeah, they, a, they, they can a big PR campaign turn it around for Kamala Harris? That NBC poll is devastating. So let's talk about Harris. All right. the, the first thing is I, I understand. I, I, I think I met her, but, but she's got uh, Sheila Nix, who's a new chief of staff, who by every estimation, by resume and reputation, is, is a talented chief of staff. I don't know how talented she is in politics, but she's clearly qualified. And they, what they're going to do is they're going to take a very active uh, on choice issues. All right. And she's going to be very. What, the thing that she should have done, and she would not be in this in serious a predicament if she is, is she do something against the narrative. Everybody knows she's pro-choice. Right, she's one of a thousand voices out there. If she would have taken the crime issue as a former prosecutor and attorney general and run with it from the beginning and run out of character, out of type, people might have been willing to, to take a look and say this, this this person is different. 
if she would have taken the immigration issue as opposed to Biden sent her down there and for one play, and then basically, to best as I can figure, she's mostly been out of the game, is she were down there on the southern border asking questions and, and talking about things and reporting back. You, you're not going to they're not. It's all likelihood. They they're not going to take you off the ticket. Although I got, I'd be honest, it's, it's, it, it, I'm certain it crosses their mind. But they've done a you know to the extent of playing in, inside politics. If you touch her, it's an insult to every one woman of color everywhere in the country. Yeah. Just seeing the way the Biden people operate, that that will probably scare them off. But she, until she does something. To, that is not predictable, people are going to have a predictably low opinion of her. And she is just, if, if anything, the most predictable politician in America right now. Right. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, totally. I mean, going long on choice is not going to get you anything. The only thing that uh, should give them cause for uh, some uh, optimism and everything else is to look at the other side. Uh, Trump, that tape that came out about Donald Trump this week when he was talking to the people doing a book up at uh, up in Bedminster is devastating. I mean, it's game, set, match. It just proves us everything. In that tape, he says, number one, I'm giving I'm showing you classified material. He says it's classified. He says he could have declassified as president, but of course he can't now. And isn't it interesting in almost jokes about it? Look, his only hope, he's been indicted twice now. He's certainly going to be indicted in Fulton County, probably be indicted for January the 6th. His only hope of getting off in that Fort Pierce case, which I'm not sure when it's going to be tried. She said, August, that's not going to happen. Maybe next year is that this friendly judge enables a number of MAGA supporters to get on that jury. Uh, But he has at least two or three other indictments. The odds of Donald Trump escaping all three or four indictments is about, you know, 200 to one. I mean, that's what a long shot that would be. I mean, each case to varying degrees uh, is strong. So the only way ahead for Donald Trump to avoid this slammer is, number one, win the presidency, which I hate to say is not a long shot anymore, uh, or and then pardon himself. Or number two, if the Democrats win, admit guilt, pay a humongous fine, apologize, and do everything that Trump's character doesn't allow him to do. Well, all right, I'll start with the fourth year's jury. I think that problem is overrated. I know a lot of friends of ours, you know, say, oh, you know, you got to have a Trump person on that. Juries tend to, if, if selected with some level of conscientiousness, tend to look at the facts in the law. You know, you, you get convictions every day, of, of, uh, uh, every day in places like New Orleans or Baltimore. You know, majority black cities with majority black jurors convicting black criminals. That's not that that's that's a very 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 common occurrence. And uh, you know, Fort Pierce is more Republican in Washington D.C., but man. When you sat there, I like to think if I was on a Trump jury, and I don't take a backseat to anybody hating him, but I think if I told that judge that I was going to pay attention to the to the law and the facts, I think I could do it. There's no chance that I'd be on a jury, but uh, I'm just saying, you know, you get you can weed out the government 
can look at social media posting to public stuff with people. They could, they could, and I think they have 10 preemptory challenges, but, but they can argue to, to that judge. You know, I think they can draw, I think we give it up on the fact you can't get a, a good jury pool in, 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 in that district. I'm sure you'd get a better jury pool if you're in Manhattan, but I, I'm, I'm not as, I'm not as distressed about that. He, he is in such legal trouble. I, I mean, he's in profound and deep legal trouble. Now, now he's saying it was plans for the golf course. I think we're going to have a good interview with David Ignatius later in the show on this. But in, in the Fulton County stuff is coming. And you, you, you know the Jack Smith is coming again. He's going he's gonna to have to figure a way to stay out of jail. Uh, that I, I, I really believe that. I'm, uh, this is not all oh, Mueller's going to do this or that. I mean, right now he's in breathtaking legal trouble. And and have I read the entire indictment? Of course I hadn't. And people that say they did, most of them haven't. But I know a lot of people who who have read it. And to say it's 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 a just unbelievably strong indictment. And the chances that these guys are going to be lying in that indictment are pretty remote. So, I, 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 you know, you said for a long time that you didn't think that Trump would be the Republican nominee. Uh, I, I, I think the chances that you write increase a little bit by the day. But we all do the same thing. Indictment Manhattan, we say, all right, let's see the polling. Seven right. days later, he's two points down overall, but he's two points up with Republicans. Then he gets indicted in Mar-a-Lago. Well, let's see the poet. Another two points down with everybody else, another two, three points up with Republicans. But, you know, sometimes, as Lenin was right, the history goes decades with nothing happening, and then history goes weeks with decades happening. Yep. And it, it works till it doesn't work. We're doing a and, lot of history this year, aren't we, James? Well, we've seen a lot. We've seen a lot. But, but in terms of Trump's approval, we haven't seen a lot. But I, I, there's a lot. I, I'm totally convinced. There's a lot more coming. And when he is told that he faces a very real prospect of, of incarceration, uh, I thought, you know, Williamson County represented me. They have a thing; they'll do anything to keep you out of jail. If they, if you, if they say you got to plead to something, and you, but you don't know jail, I could plead to get out of it. Do anything you can to avoid the penitentiary, which is good advice. James, there's one big difference. No, two big differences. <clears throat> number one, there is no prospect of you going to jail, and number right. two, you listen to your good lawyers. Trump, there is a great prospect that Trump could face jail time, and number two, he has never listened to his lawyers. That's why he doesn't have great lawyers. I don't know that that's going to change. Maybe, I, but I doubt. I, I, I don't either. In every great lawyer, uh, every you know, good lawyer, the first thing. The first advice you get is shut the fuck up. Okay, that's that. You know, what people do, but they, the reason any of us what they did after what they were supposedly to do. And I've never seen a, a guy convict himself more than Trump does. Yeah, yeah, he sure does. Okay, we will be following these sagas so much for another what sixteen months, Jay? Wow.
America's premier foreign policy national security columnist, David Ignatius of the Washington Post, joins us, James. David, what a Russian whirlwind. I mean, it's just, you go back, I guess, to 1991 for anything like it. As of today, and it could change, tell, tell me how strong or how tenuous is Putin's hold on power uh, you wrote that he blinked, and uh, is that that would indicate his his hold is not very very real? And and Prigozhin uh, is is in Belarus. What's his future and of his Wagner Group? So, uh, Albert and James, first, um, I think his hold on power has been weakened. He's been uh, demonstrated to be. Um, target of uh, what he called an armed mutiny, most of us would call a coup attempt, by his former friend from St. Petersburg, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, the Wagner militia leader. Uh, and we're now in the, the period in which Putin is trying to figure out just how deep the conspiracy that Prigozhin organized against Putin's regime went. Uh, there are uh, rumors of uh, people within the Russian military who were, were part of this scheme. One of the fascinating things is that U.S. intelligence uh, picked up um, uh, probably signals, that, uh, communications between Prigozhin and, and members of this conspiracy at least a week before uh, Prigozhin moved. So those are the things that are right now driving Putin crazy, trying to figure out uh, how vulnerable is he. Uh, but the in simple answer to your question is there's no question that he's weakened. I just would caution you and your listeners, um, Putin is still very strong and very dangerous, and it's way too early to be dancing on his grave. He ain't gone yet. That's a point well taken. And as Stephen Cocken notes, the history of coups, uh, you know, isn't very encouraging in Russia. But 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 you also noted that Putin couldn't count on his army. He just couldn't count on his army uh, last weekend. And usually when a dictator can't count on his army, it suggests he may not be a dictator for long. So even with all the power he has, he's got to be hearing footsteps every day, David. He does. Uh, so I just want to recount um, the events of Saturday, because this is a day that historians will study for, for years. So Prigozhin uh, storms Rostov-on-Don in the southern Russia, the command center for their campaign in Ukraine. He's welcomed, cheered in the streets, immediately takes over this command center. Another unit uh, of his militia moves up the road toward Moscow, and they move essentially unopposed. Prigozhin said on Monday, the army uh, let him pass, greeted him, welcomed him. So he moves to within 120 miles of Moscow. That's pretty darn close. He's, he's at the gates of the capital. When by Prigozhin's own account, he sends out reconnaissance and realizes that there's going to be a bloodbath. In other words, that the support he was expecting from the military and the security forces in this conspiracy isn't there, that, they've, that, they've, that Putin has managed to, to get them to, to turn sides and that there's going to be a, a bloodbath. That's the point at which suddenly Putin has the upper hand. He's exposed Prigozhin's plot. And that's the moment in which this weird a deal to get Prigozhin out of the country to Belarus is hatched uh, by, by Lukashenko. 
Put yourself in Prigozhin's shoes now. He's in Belarus. He saw he couldn't take Moscow. Um, he's another guy that's got to hear footsteps and got to worry about survival. But what do you think he's planning now or hoping for now? And does he have any options? So he his, his option really is to survive another day and another day after that. Uh, I would not write a life insurance policy for this man. Yeah. Uh, I, I think... Uh, it's clear now that, that Putin's initial reaction was to kill him. Lukashenko said in an interview that was published uh, today that uh, Putin talked to him on Saturday about wanting to whack uh, Prigozhin using the mafia language. Uh, and I think that still very well could happen. Uh, the, you look at people who betray P Putin, whether it's uh, Sergei Skripal, the intelligence defector, or Litvinenko in Moscow is poisoned. P Putin goes after these people relentlessly. So I, I think I think Prigozhin is in permanent danger. He won't he won't sleep. Uh, uh, as somebody put it, will sleep with, with one eye open for the rest of his life. Um, the the reciprocal question is is how much will Putin worry? Um, and again, I would caution people uh, in the over-dramatizing Putin's vulnerability. The truth is he exposed this coup and stopped it bloodlessly without firing a shot. He has an uncanny ability, I think, uh, as, a, as a dictator for um, moving at the, at the right time. And in truth, <clears throat> there was nobody other than this goofy ex-chef uh, who was prepared to challenge him. There, there, there was no real opposition. That's part of why Putin's still in power. What happens to the Wagner group of thugs? Uh, they, some say, have been Russia's most effective fighting force in Ukraine and active certainly in Africa and Syria. Where do they go? What do they do? It's one of the questions that we're all uh, watching. I would question whether they've been an effective fighting force. They've been an effective okay. siege force. They've been effective cannon fodder. Um, they died by the thousands, so you could say they're they're brave soldiers. But in terms of uh, military prowess, not demonstrated uh, to me. Um, they remain powerful in Africa. So the best thing that Prigozhin can hope for is that he survives personally in Belarus, that his fighters continue to do these very lucrative contracts in Mali and other countries where they basically get a share of mineral, mineral wealth and other, other loot in exchange for their services. Prigozhin gets even, even richer. Putin revealed one of the astounding things that came out the last couple of days is that, is that the Russian state paid Prigozhin, who turns out to be this, this traitor, a billion dollars for the services of his, his militia in, in Ukraine and another billion dollars for catering. I mean, holy smokes, what are they serving? Filet mignon every night? So uh, <laughs> that's $2 billion that was paid to Prigozhin uh, to, to fight this valiant war in Bakhmut. Uh, so um, what, what will happen to these Wagner troops? I'd be surprised if any Russian military commander trusted them um, with any significant role in the war going forward. James. Uh, oh, David, uh, thank you so much. And uh, yep, our astute foreign policy observer, I'm a political guy. Although I did work in Ukraine, uh, I guess about 2007. And when you get into 
Eastern Ukraine, that part of the world, it's not the skins and the shirts. I mean, some people are Russian, some are not. It's it's a very fluid dynamic. It's just not like we think. If you, it's not even like you're from Mexico when you're from the United States. It, it's it's very morphous. And one of the in Belarus, just as a political guy, I don't even know if this is like a country. All right, they're Rus and they're white Rus or whatever. But Lomachenko is a strike struck me, and I guess to some extent still strikes me as a Russian vassal state. Yet he became the kind of negotiator, the central guy in this. Do you have any kind of insight as to the backstory? Did they use him to broker theirs? Is he really at risk because he he let Putin put nuclear weapons in his country and? You know, is he a separate country? Is he like the fifty-first state? I don't know. But help, help us on this, James. My feeling is that is that he's on a very short leash. That he would not have played this uh, mediation role, if you will, right. unless Putin had had asked him to, uh, had authorized him to do it, to do it. Right. Why did Putin do that? Again, I think Putin just couldn't be sure that Prigozhin's forces had been stopped. Putin doesn't like uh, moving into territory that's unknown where he can't control it politically. He, he, he abhors that. And this was that, that situation of uncertainty. So he, he ceded some of his authority to, to Lukashenko, but not much. And um, it's still true that Lukashenko, for all his strutting in the last couple of days, uh, survives basically on scraps from Putin's table. So uh, the big story now is Trump and the, the, the documents and waving them around at Bedminster and his conflict with General Milley. Can you shed any light on, do you think that if there were these plans to invade uh, Iran, were they thought up on General Milley's own, or did Trump, to your knowledge, did he ask for, for these plans? Uh, was it, what, what Trump, you don't know for sure, was it, he flashing around with, with, with documents about a new golf course layout, or is there something really serious going on here about Iran, General Milley, and Trump? So let me just uh, speculate based on what I know in general about how Please do. war plans operate. So if you're General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, for any contingency that might arise, uh, such as the possibility of a military attack, uh, uh, a war with Iran, you prepare detailed plans. Uh, the Pentagon has a whole... Uh, the section of the joint staff that does nothing but prepare war plans. Every combatant commander has war plan 2A for particular uh, eventualities. So it, it would not be surprising. Indeed, it'd be surprising if Milley had not prepared his own version of what would happen. And I'm assuming this would be after we took an initial uh, military strike at uh, Iran's nuclear facilities, then you got to follow on. The war doesn't stop there. That's the beginning. So what would you do next? And I'm assuming uh, from what's been written that, that Milley wrote out such a war plan. Uh, and, and I think Trump's point here has been to say, I wasn't the crazy uh, warmonger. I, I didn't want to go to a uh, war with Iran, as has been alleged. 
uh, it was that General Milley. Well, Milley didn't want to go to war with Iran either, but he did, as a responsible commander, want to prepare that planning. That very sensitive document, I mean, it's just hard to to overstate how, how, how delicate that information is, how valuable to be to adversaries. That's what Trump apparently was waving around. It was Milley's personal version of, of an Iran war plan. And um, it, it just, it, 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 the mind boggles at the idea that, he would, that he, would, he would show this, but it was to try to settle a political fight with, with Milley. Trump hates Milley, uh, right. and I suspect vice versa. Uh, but uh, but this was to try to get one up on Milley and show that Milley it was it wasn't it wasn't Trump who was the nut it was Milley who did this that was right. his point. So, so let me dig down a little bit deeper. I'm sure there's a plan to invade North Korea, and I'm sure there's a plan of how you would defend Taiwan to, uh, against the China. I'm sure there's a plan of what would happen if, if the Russians would invade Poland. I, 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 I don't I'm going to say shit about foreign policy, but I'm 100 percent sure. And I'm sure that that plan is sitting at the Pentagon. And they're not going to go, say, to, to the president. But do you think it's possible that Trump requested this plan to invade Iran? Would it be in the normal course of the daily thing where the Joint Chiefs would show the president what the plan was? Or was there some, based on your knowledge or assumptions or experience, was that something that Trump was looking at as a possibility uh, late in his term? Yes, so I, I, I'm I'm certain that one of Milley's concerns late in the term was that Trump Trump might do something dangerous uh, that would be destabilizing that could get the country into into war uh, and the most obvious trigger point would be Iran and so he would have wanted to, to think carefully about that. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs is the president's primary military advisor, the president's commander in chief. There is no war plan that doesn't have the either the explicit uh, or implicit uh, support and understanding of the president. Presidents are briefed on the range of, of war plans as part of what happens when you become president. You get read into a lot of very secret things that military and intelligence agencies have have planned. Uh, again. We don't know, but my guess is that um, perhaps a personal version by Milley summarizing Milley's reading this, the, the, the war plan language is just ridiculously bureaucratic and involves, you know, move X right, to right, position right, right, Y. Right. And so, so this is a more informal kind of narrative that might have been prepared. And, and uh, again, it would, I think it's Milley's responsibility to, to do that. It falls on Trump. And I, I, and I think it is true. Milley was worried that Trump might do something that would just basically overturn the, the stability of the republic. Do, do you think there's a possibility that in the interim between the November election and 2020, and Biden taking power in January of 2021, that Trump gave any thought to the idea of provoking a war with Iran to, in some crazy-ass way, think that he could hold power by doing that? I don't. I think his his thinking was in other directions. Uh, I, I think he, he was uh, very... Uh, focused on the idea of declaring the Insurrection Act to call the military out on the streets uh, in a way that would um, would bring political pressure against his opponents. In those final uh, weeks, James, uh, his uh, 
interim Secretary of Defense, Chris Miller, was instructed not to start wars, but to pull troops out rapidly from places where they were deployed. That was one of the things that bothered Millie and the chiefs was you know, the, the kind of quick um, uh, reduction of American forces. Uh, Trump wanted out of Afghanistan. Well, he sent over a, a presidential order without any vetting that would have pulled the troops uh, almost instantly out of Afghanistan. Uh, similar, similar with with uh, Somalia, there was a, there was an effort to do that. There was an effort to cut off any special forces cooperation with the CIA in a way that would have made it very difficult to conduct other sensitive operations. Those were the things that Trump was pushing in the final um, weeks, and I don't think um, that that he ever. Um, I don't, I don't know, but I don't think he he was pushing for a conflict with Iran. He was going in the opposite direction. Thank you, David Albert. Uh, let me just return to Russia and Ukraine for a minute. Um, you know, some people worry that, geez, if he's if he's in trouble, Putin could be dangerous. He could do things crazy. Uh, I, I think it was Timothy Snyder who said, "No, no." He said, "He's he's back to a corner. He's got to worry about the home front. Uh, I don't worry much about him doing anything crazy elsewhere." What, what's your take? So I think he does have to uh, attend first to the to the home front. But I'm not somebody who wants to take a large bet on whether or not he would escalate to using tactical nuclear, nuclear weapons to show strength in a situation where his forces, his special military operation is in danger of failing. He probably wouldn't. There's lots of evidence that suggests he wouldn't. But that's not one where I'd, I'd want to roll the dice. And, and I'm entirely supportive of the of the combination of, of caution and toughness that Biden and his team have shown in pushing more and more weapons to Ukraine, allowing them to stop the Russians, but being extremely careful about anything that would bring Russian escalation. And this is a period where, uh, because of what's happened in Russia, you do have to worry that uh, that Putin might escalate. You know. Might not happen, but it's, I, I'm, I'm on, on stuff like this. I'm not a gambler. I'm sorry. That's wise, I'm sure. Um, on Ukraine, I, this is just what I read, and you know it, uh, whether it's right or not. But that much vaunted offense doesn't seem to have made a whole lot of progress. Is that fair, and does it mean much? As of this date, it's it's accurate. The Ukrainians have not advanced significantly, but. The Ukrainian uh, strategy, as as I understand, and again, we're just guessing from a distance, um, is to move on different axes south and to see how the Russians react, to see where they're weak and vulnerable. And then they've kept in reserve the bulk of their mobile forces so as to be able to jump on that target of opportunity, see someplace where, where there's a break in the Russian lines, and then pow, move fast through it with, with substantial forces. They've still got those forces in reserve. Uh, I think the opportunities um, that they'll have will increase in coming weeks because of demoralization of the Russians. They've got first Russian soldier, as we say, sitting there thinking, what the hell am I doing here? You know, I've got <laughs> people, you know, throwing mud pies at each other back in Moscow, and I'm in this crappy trench, you know. Uh, so I think... Um, Ukraine's opportunities will, will increase and, and 
the, the point point to underline is when they're when they when when they have an opening, they have the forces in reserve to exploit it. David, one final question from me, and James may have one or two more. I'm sure one person watching this about as carefully as we are is Xi Jinping. Uh, what what would you guess he's thinking, and does it change any of his calculations? So th- there have been a number of lessons that she would have drawn over the last year. Uh, the United States is tougher uh, in supporting allies than uh, he might have thought. Um, uh, despite its political disorganization, it's more capable of bipartisan action than he might have thought. Uh, in terms of the events of the last week, what I think she is thinking, which she thinks every day anyway, is the importance of absolute control of his party and military security establishment. Um, it, she has always been paranoid about 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 challenges. There have been many challenges to Xi since 2012 when he emerged as the, the, the biggest of the big men in China. Uh, there have been a lot, of, a lot of people who would have loved to have cut him down to size. And he has been absolutely ruthless. He conducted essentially a purge of the party, the military, and the intelligence services from 2012 to maybe 2016. There's a whole new generation in each of those institutions that are Xi people. Yeah, on he thinks he can depend on, but now I think he's going to be even more paranoid. He's going to look carefully. He's going to have his commissars vet everybody. Is that person really loyal to me? Anybody who spoke up on behalf of anything she didn't like, I think he's he's going to focus on. But he, he sees now um, the importance of the path he chose. Putin chose to allow corruption in this weird freewheeling oligarch. Uh, situation with people, characters like Prigozhin running around. She went the opposite direction. She said, we need to stop corruption in China. So he created a, a, a discipline inspection commission to do this purge of the party and the military to get the corrupt freewheeling oligarchs in China out of power. He, he's, I'm sure, thinking, man, did I ever do the right thing? Look at what happened to my friend Vladimir, who didn't do that. He almost got sacked. Right. James? So, 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 David, I'm going to use your expertise. I'm going to ask you a political polling question, right? Yeah. And the, you, I would frame the question, when it comes to China, A, some people say China is a, a growing power, an effective country whose tentacles are being spread throughout the world, and it poses an existential threat to U.S. dominance around the world. There are other people, option B, who say China is not near as strong as it looks on the surface, they have significant debt, significant demographic powers. They only have one aircraft carrier, and their strength militarily and diplomatically is overrated. Which comes closer to your view, statement A or statement B? Well, this is the weaselly answer. No, it's all right, but, but you got you to gotta pick A or B. I understand. So, it's framed so to be weaselly. So I, I think the, the China threat has been overhyped a little bit. I, I, I think they're the first peer competitor we've ever had. They are powerful and getting, getting more so. But they're not uh, uh, destined to be dominant in the way that we thought five years ago. Five years ago, it was just an axiom that they were going to be the overwhelming power right. in the world. And I, I think people now question that. Um, 
India is larger uh, in terms of population. India is growing significantly faster than China. In, India is growing about 10% now. China's lucky if it's growing 5%. I think it's probably more like three or four. So you had this explosive capitalist economy in India uh, and, a, and a somewhat sluggish one in, in China. She has been making mistakes. Uh, he's made some significant mistakes, I believe, in, in some of the his military expenditures. So... Um, China is is less an inevitable uh, dominant power, uh, less an ine- inevitable uh, country with which we'd have to fight a war. Um, it's 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 still. I mean, it is racing to nuclear parity with the United States. It refuses to talk to us about controls on nuclear weapons. So there are a lot. I could go down a list, James, right. of things to be scared about. But in terms of your question, if you, if you have to say, is it, is, it, is it more powerful and scary than we thought or a little bit less, I'd choose a little bit less. Thank you. Uh, that was just what the course I had. But uh, you do read a lot about they have. It's not some kind of paradise. It's an autocratic state and everything they do is smart and better than we do. I, I'll leave one story. Uh, 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 only private company I've ever been affiliated with is Palantir and CEO's a friend of mine. And I tell a story about a jazz ensemble going to Beijing, and the Chinese love jazz. And so this guys from New Orleans get up and they do a concert, and everybody stands up and cheers. And the Chinese rush it, and they ask them, how did you memorize those notes? <laughs> I think I, th- I think there's some wisdom <laughs> in that jazz group and asking them how they memorize the notes. I, I think they're better at memory. We might be a little better at information, but I don't know. It's just a thought. I, I love that. The You know, I, Americans aren't quite as good as, at playing jazz as they used to be, I would I'd say we're getting well, a little bit back ourselves. Well, the reason that jazz left New Orleans is the Navy closed down all the whorehouses in Storyville <laughs> and they had to move to Chicago. But anyway, we'll, we'll have that discussion over dinner one night. Well, that was a... Yeah. David Ignatius, thank you so much. You have given, I cannot tell you, you're the best guest we could have possibly had today. Uh, please say hi to your wife, Dr. Eve Ignatius, who took you to the White House dinner the other night, I she, see. Yes, she did. And <laughs> she, she uh, in my book, she was the bell of the ball. Thank you. Adam. I can say thank that. You. Thank you, James. Yeah. Nice to talk to you. Uh-huh. You bet. Thank you, David. Hey, James, let's welcome Jeff Olivet, director of the U.S. Council on Homelessness. He has worked on this issue for more than a quarter century. Jeff, this is just a tragic problem in America. There are an estimated 582,000 people on a typical night who lack shelter. You know, as many as 46,000 people died last year of homelessness. Uh, The explanations I hear range from insufficient housing to race to drugs, mental health, maybe all the above. Tell us what are the greatest challenges and what are we trying to do about it? Well, Al, you're exactly right that this is a life and death crisis uh, that we see in communities all over the country, big cities, small cities, rural America, urban America. And uh, it is it is deadly. People die without a home uh, every day. The causes, as you said, are, are multiple. Uh, the affordable housing crisis is the biggest driver of that. 
but also the breakdown of a lot of other systems. We don't do a great job taking care of people with disabilities. We don't do a great job preventing homelessness before it happens in the first place. So in a lot of ways, homelessness is a reflection of a whole bunch of stuff that's broken. What happened to homelessness during the pandemic? And has there been any difference post-pandemic? There were many of us, including myself in early 2020, who were saying, get ready for a, a tsunami of new homelessness. People who had lost jobs, who were losing homes, who were in danger of really being displaced. And there was a, a huge, I think, bipartisan effort to invest in people through expansion of the child tax credit, through uh, emergency housing vouchers, emergency rental assistance that kept people uh, stable, expanded unemployment benefits. And instead of that tsunami materializing, what we actually saw was a flattening off of homelessness. Homelessness had been increasing in the three or four years before the pandemic. And from 2020 to 2022, it flatlined, which uh, to me is a proof point. It's a proof point that when we do things like expand the child tax credit or provide uh, emergency rental assistance so that people don't get evicted, then we can actually prevent homelessness from happening before it even starts. Boy, I wish the Democratic politicians would do a better job of explaining that because you're so right. Because a lot of those programs have now been not, not repealed, but moved back to where they were prior to 2020. Uh, and uh, they're going to be just as effective after a pandemic as they would be during a pandemic. And the need is great. I, that's, I was going to ask you, what kind of legislation would you like to see? I think you've just answered that, but you might want to add one or two things. I think there's a lot to be learned from the pandemic. I think the the lessons that could and should be carried forward are are uh, really important. One thing that we know is that supporting people in housing and then providing wraparound services works to end homelessness. We see people exit homelessness every day. Uh, what we've not done a great job of is scaling up those housing resources and service resources. So when you look at President Biden's budget proposals over the last couple of years, he's had some wonderful things like uh, providing a guaranteed housing voucher for every low-income veteran or every young person aging out of foster care, those kind of targeted universal approaches to providing housing and supports are really what works. James? Uh, so, uh, Jeff, thank you. And uh, I happen to be a slightly better educated on this issue because my son-in-law works for you, so we, we can get that right out of the, right out of the way. So when I, before, when I, well, I would see a homeless person, just say in New Orleans, in my mind, God damn, get that guy, he's mentally ill, he'll never be employed, you know, give him something in a soup kitchen, give him three hots in a cot, and let's go on with our lives. What's wrong with that picture? Because that's everybody's picture. As I understand it, a lot of homeless people are employed or families. This is not some guy that's mentally ill that, that is unemployable, but it's a lot more difficult and nuanced problem is that. Is that a correct analysis? It is. There is nothing wrong with three hots and a cot and getting food in people's belly. I mean, it, we, we do things that are about uh, emergency survival, making sure people have a safe right. place to be inside, making sure they have uh, clothes on their back and food in their stomach. None of those things solve homelessness. Those are emergency. Think of it as the emergency room. Uh, okay. You're treating a critical situation in order to keep people alive. The way out of homelessness from those kind of very important but band-aid approaches is to provide housing for people and to get people 
uh, off the street as quickly as possible into the safety of their own home with a door that locks and a bathroom they can use and a kitchen where they can cook their own dinner. People do amazingly well when we're able to do that. The other thing you said, James, that's really important is that uh, homelessness is not homogenous. There is not one single stereotype that holds up. There are plenty of people who are homeless who do have uh, serious mental health issues or serious drug and alcohol issues, and many don't. There are a lot of young moms with kids. There are young people who aged out of foster care. There are older adults becoming homeless at alarmingly high rates right now. And so it is an issue that, it, that can affect people of all different uh, situations. It's not, there's not one type of person. So I'm reading a little bit and asking, and it seems that it's kind of universal. It's that one of the best solutions to homeless is actually more housing. <laughs> Is that too simple simple or there's actually something behind that that sort of Corvillian observation that, well, if you're homeless, you need a house? Well, that's right. I mean, it's exactly right. The the, the solution to homelessness is a home. It's a house. Now, that's not the only piece of the equation. We know that a lot of people need... Well, yeah, there are a lot of ways to put a roof over people's head that don't necessarily uh, result in a permanent home. People also need access to health care. They need often job support or support getting reconnected with jobs and school. People need human connection. We need to make sure that once people are housed, they have really good wraparound supports and care and relationships so that they don't become homeless again. So I, I would say housing is essential to end homelessness, but it's not sufficient. We also need to really be thinking about what it takes for people to reconnect in communities. So before I turn it back to Al, which is going to be after one more question, let, let's talk. Everybody loves veterans, okay? Yeah, I, I wear my Marine Corps hat, and people inevitably, you know, say something nice. And the Republicans love veterans, the Democrats love veterans, you know, et cetera. Talk about veterans' homelessness and what are we doing to address that issue, which strikes people as kind of truly unjust, if you will. Well, I, all homelessness is truly unjust in my, in my right, uh, opinion, but, uh, but you're right that I think a lot of people have been able to get behind uh, addressing veteran homelessness. And, and it, it's one of the great success stories over the last decade, uh, beginning with the Obama administration and then continuing through the Trump administration and now the Biden-Harris administration. We have seen, we have driven a 55% reduction in veteran homelessness, and we've done it through housing and services. So HUD provides a lot of housing resources. The VA provides a lot of wraparound supports for people. And it's that recipe of housing with support that has allowed us to do that. We've been able to scale up those housing and service interventions with veterans in a way that we've just not prioritized as a nation with other groups. Jeff, let me follow up on something James asked. This is a small matter, but, you know, like most people, I pass homeless uh, the homeless on the street, sometimes at traffic lights. And I used to uh, give them a dollar or two. And someone advised me instead, no, it's much better to get food coupons and hand them out. I suppose that poses other problems. But what what advice did you give to just people like us who, who, who encounter uh, those poor people who are homeless? I think it's a question of conscience, Al, about whether we give money to individuals or not. Uh, there are a lot of ways to get involved with supporting work to end homelessness. A lot of people choose to give money to organizations that provide right. housing or provide food or provide support. Um, 
there are others who choose to to give somebody money. And in, in many cases, that's a question of survival for that person, whether yeah. they're going to be able to get a place to stay for the night or food in their belly. Now, there is, I think, a concern often of what people do with that money once you give it to them. And I think once you hand somebody some money, it's their money now. And they can it make is. the choices they they make. Now, again, I think each one of us has to make our own choice about whether we want to support people like that. Yeah. Um, Jeff, uh, you're doing really important work on the federal level, but a lot of the homeless issue has to be dealt with at the state and local uh, uh, level, I believe. Where where are we doing pretty well and where not so well uh, in states and localities? You know, it's my belief that we all have a role to play. The federal government certainly has a role to play in funding programs and in shaping directions for policy. But the real work plays out at the local level, as you said. It plays out in the work that mayors do and that nonprofits do, what state legislatures do in funding programs. One exciting trend I've seen in the last couple of years is a number of states beginning to invest pretty heavily in housing development, but also in homelessness solutions. The state of Minnesota just passed uh, expansive legislation funding a lot of this uh, this important work. Washington, the state of California, and others have really uh, really begun investing more heavily uh, in in the issue. And I think that's critical. It's also critical that we get private money at the table more, philanthropy, corporations, the business community, the faith community, where we see that alignment we see really good things happen. Uh, so I'll give you a couple of examples of that. You asked about geographies. In uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the county and the social service providers, the housing providers got aligned with the business community behind supporting people in, to get into housing. And they were able to reduce their downtown unsheltered homeless population uh, from well over 100 down to less than 20. Houston's been a success story that a lot of us talk about because there's been such good alignment for a long time of housing resources and the faith community and the business community and the nonprofits. Houston's actually seen a a 63 percent reduction in homelessness over the last decade. They had almost 10,000 homeless folks on any given night a decade ago, and now that number is down to about 3,000. The work's not done, but they've been able to show real progress. I'm excited about what I'm seeing come out, out of Los Angeles right now, and that sounds counterintuitive, but I think Mayor Bass has done an extraordinary job since she's she's a great mayor and she's spearheading work on homelessness in a way that very few elected officials have done in my lifetime. It's been extraordinary to watch. James, we have to get her uh, on our our show. Let me, you know, one, one final point, uh, Jeff, about some of the challenges though. Um, We live in a very comfortable neighborhood in Washington, a very comfortable neighborhood. And a homeless shelter was built, and one of the neighbors I heard complaining about it. It's right next to the police station. I mean, it is right next to the police station. And I said, number one, where in the hell do you want to put it? You know, down, you know, in some place where there's all sorts of other problems. And how, why are you threatened by something that's right next to a police station? But there is that not-in-my-neighborhood attitude that's hard to overcome. That's right. And Al, I've been to the shelter that you're talking about, and it's an extraordinary place. Uh, Washington, D.C. has actually done a really good job in getting families in particular out of shelter into housing. And that shelter that you're talking about is a stopover point for people. It's the transition, right. Yeah. And I, I think it's tragic what you're talking about, that there are so many people who just don't want those people, I put that in air quotes, those people in my backyard. And 
they would also then complain about visible homelessness downtown. So you can't have it both ways. Exactly. I, I believe that we've all got a role to play. And in many cases, that means inviting programs into our neighborhoods. Uh, we know that development of affordable housing does not decrease property values. It actually increases property values. We know that uh, people uh, exit homelessness all the time and that if we can support folks in becoming reconnected in communities, so many folks who are just living on really hard times can be great friends and neighbors and family members and reconnected. They, they already are. And this kind of dehumanization of people and this otherizing of people, those people, is just not useful. And it's not humane, frankly. It's not the kind of nation I want to live in. James? So before we go, I'll just make an observation, maybe get your comment. People like, what they don't like is disorder. So if you ask people, what are you, what are you feeling toward immigrants? Now, they'll be very positive in the country, but more, more than you would think, all right? What are your feelings toward the southern border? They would be what you would think negative, all right? It's the same thing with crime, and it's the same thing with homelessness. I think most people's instinct is not to dislike the homeless person, but to dislike the disorder, all right? Because it, it's not very orderly if you live in a city, particularly like I do, a, a, even a poor city, is I, I, I don't hate that person, but I, I don't like I, I don't like what I'm seeing. And, and I, I don't you know, and that's just a, I think it's a very human reaction that people have. I, I, I like immigrant people. Of course I do. But I don't like disorder. I, I, I understand that some people are disadvantaged in life, but I don't like crime. And uh, to the extent that messaging works in this is that we can do this in a humane, orderly way. It, it, we, we don't, it doesn't require disrupting a lot of lives. It requires helping people's lives. That, that, that's just the general observation from yep. 35,000 feet on the issue that admittedly I'm deficient on. But thanks to you, I'm less deficient today. <laughs> we are a lot less deficient than we were 15 minutes ago. Jeff Olivet, you are doing incredibly important work. Just very quickly, for our listeners out there, just very quickly, what, what, what can they do? What's the best thing to do? I mean, to give money to one of these organizations or just 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 in 15 seconds, give them some advice. People can get involved in all kinds of ways. First of all, hold out hope that we can actually end homelessness. It doesn't right. have to be this way. We can do better. I think people can give money. People can give time. People can advocate for good legislation at the local, state, and federal levels. I think people, first and foremost, can treat people experiencing homelessness as fellow human beings and treat them with kindness, with respect, with love. Uh, and I think we can, we can do much better for each other as a, as a nation, as a society. Good advice for everybody out there. And Jeff Olivet, the director of the U.S. Council on Homelessness, this has really been for us a, an important experience. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. James, this is when we usually do our outrage of the week, and there are so many candidates uh, that it's uh, often difficult to pick which one is the most outrageous. So we're going to turn it around this week and talk about something that is a real uplift, a, something, a really great story. 
namely the College Baseball World Series in Omaha, Nebraska, which attracted a lot more attention than usual. James, maybe, I don't know, I'm not quite sure who won that World Series. Can you you tell us a little bit about it? (laughs) I'll tell you about your your school, Wake. One play won it for us, and that was that. Us as being LSU. Yeah, between Wake and LSU. Because we were not going to hit the Wake Forest pitcher. They were not going to hit our pitcher either. I, I say they would have scored one run and they would have won the game at the end of nine innings, one to nothing. That, that's an 80% certainty. And the, the main reason we made that play is we played Oregon State and Kentucky in the regional and both of them used that play a lot. So they had that practice. play was a squeeze bunt. A squeeze bunt. Down and what happens baseline. is the first baseman, it's very hard. He has to rush down the first baseline. He's got to feel the ball. He's got to move it to his right hand. He has to throw it to the catcher. All right, just to, to complicate it more, the catcher's looking down the first baseline. It's not like you're, you're, you're in position to make the tag. That's a complicated defensive play that requires, and, and our first baseman is, you know, a, a real Trey Morgan, who's a very, very, very good fielding first baseman who had practices and, and made the perfect play. And, and it, it, he did get him out, but it wasn't by much. And that, that was the whole ball game. Yeah. Now, whether whether you beat Florida in the, the best out of three, I don't know. You, you probably you might have. But it, well, it when you just, do it in a game like that, it's, you know, and uh, two games before, our catcher, Lee, made a almost equally sensational play to tag a guy out at home. It was unbelievable. But but people are not going to remember that one because it wasn't the game decider at the right. end, the way um, the way uh, Trey's was. It, it was it was a fabulous play. Yeah. LSU had just a great run. But, you know, James, watching that, and I was disappointed Wake Forest lost, but incredibly proud of them and incredibly proud of the season. I think they were the number two team in the country, not Florida. I think it's LSU uh, and I then Wake Forest. I think that's pretty clear. I have never seen better pitching in a college. I mean, throughout. Yeah, there were two you know, route games, but with LSU and Wake Forest, you saw two great staffs. So there's a, first of all, they got to a high audience of $4.2 million on ESPN. ESPN, the, 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 we won them both, but, but the two fastest growing collegiate sports by far are women's basketball and men's baseball. By the way, the women's softball is a really growing sport. Oklahoma dominates that. Yeah. You're like the UCLA crazy. of women's softball. But there's a UCLA great the photograph, and I'm trying to get where at, did Alex Milano, our catcher, fractured his shin. He scored, and he had to go around a guy and cost him to, to put his leg in a, in a cast and bring him out to the game. And we had the dog pile. Paul Skanes gave him a ride on his back, <laughs> carrying him out <laughs> to the dog pile. And, you know, they, I mean, Kim Mulkey was there, Joe Burrow was there, Brian Kelly was there. I, I mean, that's, that, that, that can do nothing but help. It's not going to do anything but help Wake Forest. I mean, the, the story of the coach there was just a great story. I mean, Rhett Lauder is going to be a top five pick. He may be the yeah. second best pitcher in, uh, in college but baseball. Could, 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 could be. And there were so many, you know, the other thing, there were big names there. I mean, Skanes and Dylan Cruz and Lauda and that White, White Langford, the guy from Florida, was a huge yep. name. I mean, they, they really had the stars on stage, and, and the public responded. Like, it was what, by far the highest. 
I tell you what I'm hoping, James. I'm hoping that the Washington Nationals, who draft second uh, and, uh, this summer, I hope that their pick is Paul Skeens of LSU because I think he may be the best pitching prospect since Steven Strasburg. Well, I, I hear rumors. I repeat rumors. I don't know if they're true, but there's some subterranean view that the Pirates don't might take Skeens first. Yeah, I and, hope not. I I I I I I don't know. I, I'm kind of with you. I, 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 as good as Dylan Cruz is, let me tell you. You talk about now. This is college. There's a lot of good college players that don't make it in the pros. But he, his fielding and that he's an unbelievable center fielder. He is an unbelievable base runner. I mean, really good base runner, really good fielding center fielder. He made he made a couple of plays against Florida that were were, were really. Saying they were Willie Mays, but they were su- superb fielding plays. You know, he batted for something. He's got real power. He was the player of the year in college baseball. He, he like a constellation. Well, no, I'm with both, you. I'd rather escape. Both would be good choices, but and you know, right. I, you know, I tell you, if I were drafting, you know, fourth or fifth, you know, I'd take Brett Lauder. He is a great pitcher. And we, we are got, not going to hit him, right? And, right. and we I have know. a we have a double a, a, a double A batting order. All right. I mean, we're, we're, we're the best hitting team in college baseball. We weren't coming close to hitting Rep. Right. No, it, when we weren't not. coming close to hitting Skeens. That's, it well, was no, a fabulous well, game. Okay. That's better than any outrage we could have done this week. Uh, it was I, – I, I called James Carville the night they won. It was a cause of some celebration. I hope he took Z-Biotics that night. Oh, I'm uh, tonight. It's on tonight. <laughs> they're having a celebration at the box. Yeah, I think it's going to be seven thirty Baton Rouge time, be eight thirty Eastern. I, I guarantee you that that thing will be so full you won't believe it. Okay, I mean, they'll, they'll, right. they'll, they'll go nuts. Take Z-Biotics. All right, James, now for our Screw the Voters segment. The Brennan Center reminds us this week is the 10th anniversary of one of the worst Supreme Court decisions ever, Shelby County, that declared the states with a history of voting discrimination against blacks no longer had to get clearance from the Justice Department for any changes in their voting rules. What do they do? Almost immediately, they passed new voting restrictions. It's in a list of one of the five worst Supreme Court decisions, Dred Scott, Korematsu, which sanctioned the detention of Japanese citizens, overturning most of McCain, Feingold, and the Dobbs decision, add Shelby County. It was really, really an outrage. It was 10 years ago today, and we've paid, a democracy has paid a price. And James, but James, I want to give you one bit of good news, and then you can comment on it. The, uh, some good news. I heard from Terry Goddard from Arizona, uh, who we had on, and he passed that bill that required disclosure. The Arizona Supreme Court upheld that voter referendum, despite the intense opposition of all the of all the vested interests. So Terry Goddard, another big win for him in Arizona on on just disclosing large donors. Oh, that's great. Let me the Burns said ought to get a goddamn Nobel Prize. And it's not just because Michael Waldman, you know, who's a war room guy. I mean, the, the stuff that they do and the expertise they have, the reliability they have, the, the good people they have there, it, it, it's just a, a, a unbelievable organization. And I, I mean that. I really do. And they're just invaluable in this whole thing. And people should really go and link on to their site. And my experience with them is 
with when they say something's a fact, you, you can pretty much take it to a bank. It's a fact. You you can you can. I couldn't agree with you more. All right, now for our listener questions, a whole bunch of really good ones from all over the world this week, James. We'll start with Dan in Winmore, Pennsylvania, uh, who says as November 24 uh, gets closer, uh, you discuss the ways Republicans will tilt the playing field in their favor, lies, deceit, gerrymandering, voter suppression. It would it would be great. Please discuss the implications of the several red states dropping out of uh, uh, Epic. Remember, we did that voter suppression. That's the one that tests whether you know voting is being done legitimately or not. It, it, it's a bald faced way to enable more voting fraud. I mean, I think Dan's right, James. Don't you? This is just Republicans worry they can't win legitimately, so they're going to win illegitimately. I, I think the mo- and of course you're a hundred percent right. The most telling quote. And all of this was by Cleta Mitchell, who was really right wing, but but very influential uh, attorney on the right. She said in Wisconsin, these students just roll out of bed and go vote. Well, duh. Isn't that what the general idea is? All right. My entire life is I've rolled out of bed and I've gone to vote. My voting precinct is a uh, is it a block? Yeah, maybe not even a half block and a half block equal one block, right? That is commonplace. They're, 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 what is wrong with these people? Why would you deny someone the right to vote? And, and this woman is an accomplished attorney who, like, I don't know, must have gone to law school and said, well, let's just roll out of bed and vote. Well, of course we do. What's wrong with that? And by the way, why shouldn't a 19-year-old vote? They have a hell of a lot greater stake in the future of this country than me as a 78-year-old have, wouldn't you think? They certainly have a longer one. Yeah, but they're <laughs> so patently, so unaware of, of what they say, but it's, it's, it's what it is. They don't yeah. want college kids in Wisconsin to vote. Just say what it is. Yeah. No, it is. Look, it's Peter, they uh, tell you. Peter, in my favorite town, Boston, Massachusetts, says, "In my dream, Joe Biden makes a surprise announcement in the order of LBJ's March 31, 1968 conference, at the end of which he says he's going to withdraw from the 2024 race." Please complete my dream. Who do you think would step up the Democratic ticket? And I ask each of you to fantasize a little and then respond in reality. To do the latter, to respond in reality, it ain't going to happen, Peter. Uh, It might be a dream I have too, but I just don't think it's going to happen. If, to talk about your fantasy uh, for a minute, if that should happen, what would happen? Kamala Harris would immediately declare, but then seven, eight, ten other people would get in. And it would be a very open race with a lot of very talented political people. Uh, if you ask me my preference uh, for a Democratic ticket under your unrealistic scenario, Peter, it would be Gretchen Whitmer and Roy Cooper or Gretchen Whitmer and Mitch Landrieu. James. So, so first of all, I, I, I don't think it'll happen, but I, I, I think you underestimate the possibility that there's mm-hmm. a lot to go. And the following, this would be what I'd say. Of course, I'm, a lot of people I like. The, the image of our party right now is that we're old urban party. 
all right, that, that, that people, and there are so many, and, I, and I've been on this for so long, there are so many talented people in the Democratic Party that it, 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 it's hard to overstate it. And they're talented people who would be very strong 2024 candidates. Come 2028, it's going to be so unbelievably talented. And what we're doing, and I, I, I don't have to admit, I don't have to pile something. We know we talk about saving democracy, which I prefer talking about saving the Constitution because that's really what's at stake. But we're giving the country a choice that they don't want. I mean, the polling could not be clearer that people are looking for something other than a Biden-Trump rematch. They just are. And the, the, in the, the image of the Democratic Party, when you listen to people, is, is that it's all old coastal people. So what's your fantasy and, ticket? My, I, you know, obviously, I've been, Mitch Landers was my favorite politician. And by the way, I, I, they were doing, you did this interview for the documentary and they interviewed Mitch and they were like texting me like, oh my God, you know, wh- 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 who, this guy's unbelievable. But my fantasy is that people see that if it's Governor Whitmer, it's Roy Cooper, it's Mitch, it's Raphael Warnock, it, it, it's whoever, I guess, but people see that there's energy and talent all over this party, and it's coming from all over the country. And the people, and non-coastal people, and I've come to understand that, think that coastal people never think about them. And that there's, that's not true, it's not totally true, it's not mostly true, but there's more truth in it than we'd like to admit. In the Democratic Party, you know, our former speak leader was from San Francisco, our current leader, I love both of them, is from New York City. All right, the majority leader is from Maryland. I, I, the, the Senate majority leader is from, from Brooklyn. And I just think people need to see this party as something other than an herbal, coastal, elderly political party. Yeah. And that's our image right now. And I can't, I can't blame people for thinking that. And Joe Biden, great guy, he's from Pennsylvania and Delaware. I, I'm, I, I mean, when you think about it, if you're from Michigan, or, or you know, I don't much count North Carolina as a coastal state, but I don't understand they have a coastline. But that, that, I don't think of it. You don't in, think in you wouldn't way. think of Roy Cooper as an urban elite. I think, I think and, that's, but it's, uh, it's, that's it's not, it's not say. just an urban elite. Yeah. It's that we just, and all of the people, when they see a Democrat on TV, they see somebody older. And, and uh, you know, look, look, just, just look at our candidates and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. There's nothing inherently wrong with being from, from Boston or from Vermont, but it's just what, that's what people see and that's what people think. And we can't break out of this until we show people that we have, and, we, and we're just busting with fucking talent. All right, Peter, I mean, keep, Peter, that's a good question. You stirred the it juices. Uh, keep it coming. Great question. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Arthur in Covington, Kentucky, says with abortion now being effectively banned in Kentucky, even after Kentuckians voted down an attempt to ban it, what effect will it have on this year's governor's race, given that Daniel Cameron, the Republican, is the one who pushed 
for the abortion ban? First of all, I know Covington well. It's, you can, it's right across the river from Cincinnati. And, uh, a lot of great people there. Uh, people don't like these abortion bans. Right, in Kentucky, they voted. They don't care. All right, if, if you know, and you, you hear all this chin scratching and we got to save the market. Ron DeSantis, people like, oh man, if he gets it, not Trump. Ron DeSantis signed a six week abortion ban. I, I, people I talk to that know something about this, I've obviously never been pregnant. I'm, I'm not a birthing person, to say the least. You're not. But, but they, a lot of, you don't even know when you're pregnant after six weeks. And and DeSantis never talks about it. He signed it, you know, as they all do, in the middle of the night, and he never discusses it. Well, if he gets to be the nomination, it's going to get freaking discussed. And I would point out something else. Since the Dobbs decision, we've not lost an election. And and don't tell me we lost 2022. We did infinitely better than any we had any mm-hmm. any right whatsoever to think we would do. And we went in, in Jacksonville and Kansas and uh, Wisconsin and Colorado Springs and Pennsylvania. I mean, this is a potent issue. The Supreme Court fucked up and John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh know it. You can see them crawfishing, which is Louisiana from back and moving you, backwards like crazy. You sure but, can, Arthur. Was, and I think that your question... Uh, I'll make my prediction. You shouldn't predict, but I'll make a prediction. Um, Bashir's going to be reelected in Kentucky. I'm afraid you're going to lose the governorship in Louisiana, James, but the upset win will be in Mississippi. But I right. think you're absolutely I, right, Arthur. I, I'll when, be uh, in uh, Daniel Cameron. on the 22nd of August during the fundraiser for Andy. We, I did run last year. We raised the last time we ran. There is foreign grand, but I'm co- I love Kentucky. Love All right, Arthur, August 22nd, you got to be in Louisville. Brendan, yeah. and we're, we're going from Covington to Greenwich Village, New York. All right. Brendan asked if a Republican were to win in 24, would Tim Scott be the best of the lot in terms of unifying the country and respecting the parameters of American constitutional democracy? Or is he just another hard right kamikaze? Uh, when Jack Smith takes down the Don, Ron's too uninspiring. Uh, does Tim Scott have a legitimate lane? Brendan, I have no doubt that Tim Scott's better than Donald Trump because anybody is. But first, tell me, what has he done? Well, I mean, I, I, every story I read about Tim Scott is he's more optimistic than the other. Well, great. He's a black Republican. Yes, that's true. But what has he done? He's been in the Congress now for 12 years, and I'm not sure he's ever done anything. I'd kind of like to know that a little bit more before I say, okay, Tim Scott is the best of a, of a bad lot. You know what Tim Scott is? He's a safe space Republican. So I was listening something on a car radio. It was either, I don't know, it was 124 or 122. And they had uh, Don Bacon, who's the Republican congressman in that very dicey district, Nebraska, too. And the guy's a retired Brigadier General. And he was, to be fair, he was very critical of Trump. All right. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, who could you be for? And he, right away, he went to Tim Scott. Right. Tim Scott is the savior. If you're a Republican in a district that Biden carried and, you know, you want to be a Republican, you want to say something provocative, you want to show people that you're a minor. I don't think that Tim Scott ever did. But it was interesting that he was the safe space guy yeah. for and it's only eight percent of their party. 
But I, I thought that was interesting. The other thing is, it was, I read a story this morning where he's actually honestly raising fundraising. He says, you need to give me money now because they're going to judge me on how I do in the second quarter, whatever, whatever it is, which is a kind of odd fundraising appeal, honesty. <laughs> okay, uh, I, I agree on Tim Scott. All right, James. Finally, Patrick uh, in Exeter, New South Wales, Australia. Ooh. He says, common wisdom says the entry of a third party into the presidential election is bad for Democrats. But is it? Is it not possible, Patrick asked, that disaffected traditional Republicans could vote third party to register their disapproval of the current GOP? Well, all right, that, that's a, boy, you talk about a question. First of all, is, is something possible? Yes, highly unlikely. And let me just point out something to my friends from New South Wales, which I think is the most populous of, of the Australian, they call them states or whatever. There's a fourth party, Cornell West, who's going to get a lot of votes. And it is much more likely that a no-labels challenge, assuming that's there, would be much more harmful to Biden if, if we're assuming it's a Biden-Trump matchup, which that, that, that's the assumption now. We can, we can argue with that. But Biden would be facing two alternative party challenges, one from the left, and I would just point out to people that Jill Stein was a Russian agent. Let me repeat that. Jill Stein was a Russian agent who got more votes in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin than Hillary lost by. And if you don't believe she was a Russian agent, do me a favor because the press never told you this. Google photo Jill Stein, Vladimir Putin, and notice the date on the photo, and notice who else was at the table. It was General Flynn. And if we don't sound, I'm going to tell you right now, the Times, the networks are not going to sound this fucking alarm. And if we don't sound it here, and we don't sound it clear and distinctively, the same thing can happen again. I'm Last time you. I checked, James, she was Cornell West campaign manager. And this is a this this is a terrible problem. I'm sure she's calling out the West campaign, and and I, I have a pretty good idea where a lot of their money is coming from. Maybe Cornell West can go to Russia and 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 meet with Putin. Don't know that, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put any of this off the table, if you will. But I do know that there's a photo. Prior to the 2016 election of Jill Stein, and I, I don't think she went over there on her own dime, and I'm going to go ahead and speculate openly that there was an honorarium involved in her, period, her, her appearance. And she was mm -hmm. all over RT, Russian TV, you know, being pro-Russian. Okay, I think, no, that's, that. I, I think that has answered your question, Patrick. Uh, yeah. So there's no good news coming from a third party. All right, keep those questions coming. Man, there's in. a 5% chance he's right. <laughs> maybe maybe 4.7. We'll, yeah, right. we'll get to as many as we can, and so please keep them coming in, uh, and thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. 
Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor, Z-Biotics, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them because when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. Now, to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.